So I feel like a little bit of congratulations are in order. First, um, it was it was at the beginning of the year last year where we started uh, our foundation series, which was like our first like we this is we are reconciled church uh, series. And so we've been basically if you've been with us since then, congratulations, you've made it about a year. Uh, so that's something to celebrate. We officially launched in February of last year, early February. So that uh, that's coming up as well. If you joined us for our launch date, and if you joined us at any other point in time, we're thankful to have you here. Uh, but also, as you know, when we first launched last February, uh, I started by going through Genesis chapter one, and we've done about three series in Genesis throughout the last year. We looked at uh, the first part, what we called the beginning. Uh, going from creation up to the Tower of Babel. And then we looked at the life of Abraham and what that means. And then we looked at just recently, uh, in the fall, we looked at the life of Jacob, who became uh, Israel. And if you've been with us through this time, uh, I'm excited, one, to get into the series, because I like, I like Genesis, but also this is our last of four series in Genesis uh, for probably the near future, I'm probably not going to jump back into Genesis next year after spending roughly the better part of a year in it. But uh, that brings us to our study for today. Uh, I want to pose a question out there to you. Do you ever feel like the world is against you? Have you ever felt as though you were all alone and that nothing in life was going your way? If that's the case, let me introduce you to my friend Joe. So, As I said, for the better part of the last year, we've been going through the book of Genesis. So if you've been with us through this whole study, congratulations. You're cool enough to join our club. Uh, If not, we still love you and we still want you to be a part of it all. You can go back on our, if you want to catch up with anything, you can go to our website. We have all the series from Genesis up there. So as we're nearing the end of our study, the last portion of Genesis, uh, about the last quarter of the book, is dedicated to a man known as Joseph. So... In order to understand Joseph's life, in order to get a real perspective on this, however, I think it's helpful to understand the big picture. This is, as I said, kind of the third quarter of Genesis, so it's helpful, or the fourth quarter of Genesis, so it's helpful to understand what exactly happened in the other three quarters. That's okay. I love to give you the Cliff Notes version of things. So if you're just coming in for the first time here and you are not familiar with what we've been looking at Genesis, here is my Cliff Notes version for all of you. Um... The first 15 chapters of Genesis detail the creation of heaven and earth by the Lord. Um, It begins by establishing God's authority over all of life. In the beginning, God spoke the universe into existence. God then creates mankind to care for the earth, uh, to be fruitful and multiply, and to to fill the earth and subdue it. In, In essence, humanity is given authority by God as earth's caretaker, so to speak. However, pretty much from the get-go, mankind in Adam, the first man, rejects their position under God's authority, preferring to live life on their own terms. Man being created to live in communion with God is cast out of his presence, and sin, suffering, and death run rampant in the world. That's how we see the remainder of Genesis 1 through 15 kind of play out. However, despite this, there is a promise that one day God will rescue humanity through a descendant of Adam and Eve, or a seed, as we read in Genesis. 
Now, many generations pass, and finally we see God selecting a man to bless and make into a great nation for him. He calls Abraham, or Abram as he's called, out of his pagan past in the land of Ur, renames him Abraham, calling him to dwell in the land of Canaan, a land that he has prepared for him. God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, I am God all-powerful. If you obey me and always do right, I will keep my solemn promise to you and give you my more descendants than can be counted. So, despite promises of a massive family, Abraham has only a few children, and one child in particular, Isaac, is chosen to inherit the promise of God. And so the promise passes from Abraham to Isaac. Um, Isaac then has, two tw- has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. The Lord uh, promises to give his special blessing then to Jacob. And through a series of mishaps, God grows Jacob from this weak, weaselly kid to Israel. A name that means essentially uh, God fights or one who wrestles with God. And so God matures Israel's faith through his journey. Now, Jacob, unlike Abraham, has a lot of kids. Uh, they settle in the land where God promised to Abraham, which is where we pick up in our story today. So, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to start in verse 1. So, we begin by getting to introduced to the Joseph, the main character of our story. It begins uh, the, family of, the family of Israel, or Jacob. And then in verse 2, we pick up and it says, Joseph. Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. Okay. So instantly we start our story and we're already brought into this tense family conflict. There are a couple situations that introduce us to Joseph here. None of them are terribly good. First, we know that he gave his brothers a bad report back to their father. Okay. So already like the first thing... I'm just letting you know, this is probably not the best way to introduce someone. And there was a guy named Jacob... And he tattletailed is not like the intro anyone wants about themselves, right? Now, we aren't specifically told the details of this bad report that that Joseph gave back to his uh, father, uh, like specifically whether it was true or not. However, every other use of that word in the Old Testament has to do with something which is untrue. So it's likely that he probably gave, uh, he probably embellished his report to some extent when delivering it to his dad. Some have translated the word report rather as tales, meaning he went and told some tales to his dad. Like I said, the first thing we learn about Joseph is he's kind of a tattletale. Uh, Even if it was true, anyone who's grown up with brothers knows snitches get stitches, okay? Like this is is probably not good form if you want to get on good terms with your brothers. Um, It was not a good way to win their favor. Now, not only that, we're told that Joseph was dad's favorite. Uh, We might assume that maybe this was because Joseph worked harder than his brothers and sisters, which is possible, but the text actually tells us why. It tells us specifically that because it was because he was the son of his old age. 
So, in other words, the reason that, that Jacob favored Joseph had nothing to do with his performance, okay? So it wasn't that he was the harder working son, so he loved him from that. It was because of his birth order, all right? Something that is ironic because Jacob himself was blessed by God apart from his birth order. He was the younger brother who God chose to bless. So it shows that he's making the same mistakes that his dad made before him. Now, Jacob's favoritism for him, as we say, wasn't based on merit. It was based on something that neither Joseph nor his brothers could control. Then to make matters worse, Jacob gets gets a coat that might as well say daddy's favorite on the back of it, okay? Jacob's about 17 years old at the time. Uh, And if you remember, the best way I can explain this, if you remember when you were in high school, there's always one, every high school has one. There's always one kid whose car is so much nicer than all the other kids who got cars at 16, 17 years old at high school that when you saw it, you were like, I don't know that guy, but I hate him. <laughs> if you're the, now, listen, if your parents bought you a good car, there's nothing wrong with that. If you were that kid, there's nothing wrong with that. Just understand there's probably a few kids uh, uh, sneering at you when you pulled into the, the high school parking lot. That's the way Joseph's brothers looked at him. He was the spoiled kid, all right? Now, not only, now favoritism, by the way, is a thing in the Bible that generally doesn't end well. It has, so far in Genesis, it's never ended well when someone picked their favorite. Um, obviously, now, if Joseph was more hardworking and mature, and his dad uh, gave him more favor because of that, that totally makes sense. But, like I said, this isn't based on anything like that, so it wasn't warranted. And what makes it worse is that, jo- the, is that um, Jacob, like I said, should know better. He favored his older... He was, he, he, uh, his older brother was favored by his dad than him. So he should have learned by now. But we see the same mistakes repeating themselves. This kind of repetition is something we find throughout Genesis. Thus we read that because of their father's favoritism, Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Remember that word, peacefully to him. There's, that's significant. So those of you who know the story know it's not going to end well, right? This is one of the big pictures. This is one of those big Bible stories that if you went to church for a while, you probably have heard it before. You know this isn't going to go well from the get-go, but we already see the seeds planted there. Um, The tension is already at play right from the get-go. This is why the Bible encourages us, by the way, to go address and confront those we have a problem with. So this is the problem. His brothers hate him, they have a problem with him, they have a problem with dad, and no one goes and addresses it. Rather, it says they can't even talk to him, right? They won't even go face face him and just say, hey, look, man, dad favors you and that ain't cool. Like, there's any any version of this they could have done, but they didn't. Instead, they were left stewing on it. And so the idea is, so we already see tension bubbling up. And then we see, we hear about, to make matters worse, we hear about Joseph's dreams, in uh, verses 5 through 11. Joseph's favoritism goes far beyond even his father. We read in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, brother, uh, behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you, in, are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more 
for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his brothers rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Okay, so this is one of three visions Joseph is going to have throughout the course of our story. Now, it's two separate dreams here, but they really form a common idea. Uh, One takes place, uh, if you're uh, kind of tracking the way this happens, one takes place on earth with the sheaves bowing down in the field, and the other takes place in heaven with the stars and the moon bowing down. Basically, everyone in his family bows down to Joseph, represented by his parents, the sun, his father, and the moon, his mother, and his brothers, the other sheaves or the stars. This, of course, doesn't help Joseph's relationship with his family whatsoever, okay? So he already shows up in a coat that says, Daddy's favorite. Uh, Fun thing, the word for coat or tunic here, uh, the only other reference we have to have it in the Bible describes a garment Uh, that a princess wore. So there might be a lesson there about fathers and what you dress your kids up in. I'm not going to make that today. I just want to let you know, this is the way this has. He comes up and he says, he's already wearing dad's favorite coat. And then he says, hey guys, let me tell you about a dream I had. You were all bowing down to me. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Who wouldn't hate him, right? Like, he's he's not painted in this light as this very humble figure. As a matter of fact, We just got over Advent, and there's this interesting thing in the Christmas story that when Mary hears the good news that the Messiah is going to be born to her, it says she kept these things inside of her, like like glorying with herself. She she kept these things kind of close to the chest, and she rejoiced in them. Joseph does the absolute opposite. He tells everybody about it. He 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 cannot be any quicker with telling his brothers this. Now, this it even leads to... His dad, and his dad actually steps in and corrects him. Jacob says to him, or as he's called here, Israel. He says, am I going to bow down to you as well? Me? Your dad? See, understand, guys, in, cult, in this kind of culture, fathers would bow down to sons, or sons would bow down to fathers at times. Fathers didn't bow down to sons. That wasn't, a way, that wasn't the way it worked. Now, you might accept them to just brush this off and ignore this like, you know, basically anyone else when they come and tell you their dreams. Uh, seriously, is there any other conversation that no one enjoys as much as, hey, I had a dream last night? No one wants to hear anyone else's dreams. So problem is, this family isn't... So you might think they're just going to brush this off. But Joseph's family, dreams kind of have a significant value. Basically, they got to where they were by visions and dreams and things like that. So Jacob, when he hears about it, even though he's like, am I going to do this? Am I going to be the person who is even me and your mom and dad going to bow down to you? Are you going to rule over us? Still in the back of his head, he goes, well, I had a dream before and it came true. My grandpa had a dream before and it came true. So he keeps these things. He keeps kind of mulling over these things in his head. Uh, They just can't. He basically says, I'm going to sit back and see what happens. So. We've got the stage set in our story, right? We are introduced with Joseph. He's already kind of a bit of a spoiled uh, kid. A second, he kind of gloats to his brothers, and they're already not fond of him with that. And then we see that his brothers finally have a plot. 
against him. Verses 12 through 25. Uh, verse 12, it says, Now his brothers went to pasture their, flo- their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with your flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So, one day, Joseph's brothers all go to tend their father's sheep. When Jacob, who is called Israel here, says to Joseph, Go check on your brothers for me. So, there's a play on words here, by the way, in the translation. Uh, When it says, it is well, it says, go see if they are well. Uh, The word there is actually a translation of the Hebrew word shalom, or peace. Now, remember I said, remember, his brothers couldn't speak peacefully to him, the Bible says. And now, his father sends out and says, go see if there's peace with your brothers. We already know know that there's not, right? Like, we're already clued into the idea that something's wrong. There's this... Uh, di- there's this uh, discontinuity here. Um, and so Joseph goes to see what's up with his brothers. Um, our story builds tension. He travels to Shechem, which is far from his father's land. And he's told then to go even further out to the land of Dothan. Uh, so now when we see this, Joseph is a long ways away from home. We know that there was already no peace with him and his brothers, and his father sent him out to go see if it was well, if there was peace with them. And then in verse 18, we read, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come, let us kill and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and, we, and see what will become of his dreams. So, their solution is, I don't like the message he's telling. I don't like the dreams he has. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to silence him by killing him. Basically, the idea is, if we kill our brother, then those dreams can't come true, right? It was a trap. They had lured him... It's now revealed they they intentionally lured him away from home so that no one would see what they were doing. Now, if you know your Bible and you know Genesis, there's actually a clear comparison here with these brothers' plot and Cain and Abel. This is exactly what Cain did to Abel. He went out and tried to murder his brother. He murdered his brother in a field and tried to bury him. He wanted to keep things underway. So we are, we, it's now revealed that there is this sinister plot to kill Joseph. Um, there's just a bigger family this time. It's not one guy. It's 11 guys coming together with this. So no doubt this would have been the end of the line for Jacob. Or I'm sorry, uh, for Joseph, if it weren't for one brother who intervened. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So, now... What should shock us here is actually who steps in. See, there's only, this is kind of one of those things. There's 11 brothers here, but there's only a couple that actually come out as like main characters in our story. What's weird is the brother that actually steps in here is Reuben. Now, I know we hear this and it's like, okay, he's the one who saved him. He's the one who stood up. Yay, Reuben. Let's name a sandwich after that guy. That's how we think. But here's the thing. 
If you've actually been reading your Genesis up to this point, Reuben's not a great guy. Let me give you a a verse from uh, Genesis chapter 35 about Reuben. It says, While Israel, that is Jacob, lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel, that is Jacob, heard of it. Okay, that tells us a few things. First, that Reuben was not a great guy, and that also... Jacob was not taking care of his household. He knew something was up and he just let it go. So that probably gives us a little bit of a background of how this kind of family situation is even happening. Jacob is the dad, should have been stepping in. He knew, he probably knew something was up with his sons. He probably knew they, he knew they probably hated uh, Joseph. And rather than confronting them or being like, you know what, maybe I'll dial it back on all that favoritism I'm showing Joe. Instead, he doubles down on it. So, that lets us know the situation. So, why are we told that Reuben, who was kind of a scumbag, is the one who, res- who rescues Jacob here? Well, actually, it's keeping with the theme that comes up over and over again in Joseph's story. That God uses unexpected means and unlikely people to bring about his good plans. If there was a brother who was going to step in and save uh, Joseph, the last person you would have expected at this point would have actually been Reuben. This unexpected rescuer foreshadows exactly what is going to happen in the rest of Joseph's story. And then we see, since he, can't, since he, calls, he uh, convinces them not to kill Joseph, then we see Joseph is sold into slavery. Verse 26 through 28. So Joseph is sitting at the bottom of this pit while his brothers, who had just uh, talked about murdering him, are having lunch. And they see a group of traders making their way down to Egypt with different goods. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us not be and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So Judah the brother who we'll hear more about next week, sees this stuff and says to his brothers, hey, I got a better idea, guys. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. This is not a noble move, by the way. Rather than let him, let's let him go, his idea is, hey, let's make a profit off our brother. He doesn't care about saving his brother. He just wants to get something out of it. So they sell their brother as a slave to these nomadic traders for things that would have generally been used as medicines, we're told. This is the reason for which Joseph goes down to Egypt. Now, that's the situation that puts our story in play. Then we go back to Israel, or Jacob, and we see Israel's sorrow, verse 29 through 33. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. So Reuben returns, find Joseph gone and asks, Where'd the kid go? He's the younger brother, remember. He's like 17 years old. Some of his brothers are like adults at this point in time. He says, How can I go? Basically, where can I go? How can I go back to dad without dad's favorite son. So they come up with an alibi. 
They take Joseph's coat and they dip it in the goat in goat's blood. And then they take it back to their father. And by the way, this uh, idea of take of, of uh, doing this and taking it back to their father to deceive him. If you know a little bit about Jacob's story, you know that he had a similar de- uh, deception. He went to his brother covered in goats. He went to his father Isaac covered in goatskins in order to steal a blessing from his brother before. So we see this idea repeat. This idea of kind of history repeating itself coming up over and over again. And Jacob, believing his favorite son is dead, is is heartbroken. Verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol for my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold for him Egypt, had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So three signs of mourning we see here. First, Jacob tears his clothes. Second, he puts on sackcloth, a way of showing that you are mourning something. And then three, he mourns publicly. Uh, In the Bible, one of the ways you kind of process things you see really common is you didn't necessarily just like go hide your feelings. You publicly mourned. That allowed you to kind of process and go through these things. Also, there's a subtle change here. Remember, at the beginning of the story, he was called Israel, the name God gave him. But now in verse 34, he's referred to as Jacob, the name he, his birth name. That's significant here. Basically, he's usually referred to as Israel in Genesis when he's in a position of power and authority. Here, by going back to his old name, Jacob, the author is showing us that Jacob's strength has been zapped from him, basically. He also mentions a curious place we read about throughout the Bible. He says, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Now, uh, because there's not enough time to explain Sheol, I'm going to do a Bible study video on it this week. Uh, We'll do a cutting room floor video on that, and I'll talk to you more about Sheol. Uh, but I do want to give you a little bit of a basis in this. Uh, it's often, Sheol is often translated as grave. Um, and often in the Old Testament, this is how they talked about those going down to the grave or the place of the dead. Uh, we see here that that's what he's saying. And this is significant because mourning, there was times of mourning in the Bible. Basically, you, you, the reason you mourned publicly is so you could move on. And so here he says, I'm never going to stop mourning. I'm going to go to my grave mourning, this, uh, mourning Joseph. Uh, this is also a way of showing that this thing that the brothers saw, the brothers wanted to get Joseph out of there. But by doing so, uh, um, Jacob's mourning would always remind them of their crime about what they did. These treacherous brothers would never be freed from hearing about his favorite son, Joseph. However, despite all Joseph's sorrow, we're reminded that Joseph is still alive traveling as a, as a slave in Egypt. And so the chapter ends by giving us this glimpse of hope that God still might do something. God, as we've seen even in Reuben, might still do some unlikely idea. So what do we take away from this story? What do we learn? Well, keep in mind, the book of Genesis was originally written for the slaves leaving Egypt. So, obviously, they would see themselves in Joseph's story, right? Here is uh, an Israelite, a son of Israel, being taken into slavery in Egypt. They, these, people, uh, these were people leaving Egypt after a long period of slavery. 
So it's not too hard to see the connection they would have made there. And you really can't bring up the story of Joseph, by the way, without bringing up the overall theme of Joseph's story. Uh, I'm going to give you spoilers. Uh, Genesis chapter 50 kind of summarizes Joseph's story. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's the, uh, the theme of Joseph's story. The Israelites had heard this story and were reminded that even the parts that seem horrible in their own past, God was not absent. His good plans, it did not escape his good plans for them and his authority. So here's the big idea for you this week. Even in your darkest times, God is with you. Even in our darkest times, God is still with us. God is with you even when everyone else seems against you. Like I said, let me give you a few spoilers to this story. Those dreams Joseph had, they're all going to come true. Uh, every single one of them. It's, it's the getting there that's complicated. It's the getting to that fulfillment where it gets messy. It'll involve betrayal, disappointment, and, some, and suffering. But don't miss this, guys. God's plans for his people are still good. We're starting a new year. Now, I'm not overly, I don't know, I'm not overly sentimental about New Year's. Uh, and so I don't know what 2021 exactly has in store for us. But here's the, here's the thing I do know. God's plans for his people are still good. He is still with us. He still knows the plans he's going, he has for us. And he is still able to bring all his plans to completion. See, there's an irony to this story. His brothers thought by getting rid of Joseph, they would silence his dreams. On the contrary, by doing so, they actually helped bring them to fulfillment. And so that's my call to you this morning. It's not to judge your life situation simply by what happens today, tomorrow, or even last year or the year to come. God's plans are clear and his plans can be trusted. What does the Bible tell us about that? Like, what does the Bible tell us about God's plans for us? Let me share a verse with you. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. People lose heart when things get hard, by the way. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on things unseen. In other words, you have to, you've got to look past your immediate situation or despair will overtake you. That's the message of the Bible. You've got to look past your immediate situation, so to speak. The reason we fix our eyes on things isn't unseen isn't because they're simply invisible, but rather because they have yet to be brought to fruition. We just finished talking about Advent, by the way. And I always remind people that Advent is a unique thing. We are looking back at, Christ, at the first Advent, Christ's birth, with anticipation for the second Advent, Christ's return. That is to say that the way we, are, we aren't overcome by our present troubles is by keeping the end in mind. That means without a clear understanding of God's plans for you and for the earth as a whole, 
you won't keep going. Guys, the day-to-day is just too hard if we don't keep keep the future in mind. It's a marathon, and no runner on mile 15 of a marathon goes, ah, what a refreshing, brisk walk. If you are a marathon runner, and you do feel that way on mile 15, please understand that everyone else thinks you're a weirdo, by the way. So maybe you don't feel like you can do it. But here's the good news, guys. The journey itself will prepare you for what lies in store. See, when we open up here, Joseph is this spoiled kid. But by the time he reaches the end of our story, he will have come so far that he's not even recognizable to his family. That's what God wants to do with you and your suffering. He wants to make you stronger. And as you become stronger, you actually resemble him more. See, Joseph's story is of an innocent man punished by the anger and hatred of wicked men. And it should remind us of another story as well. It should remind us of Jesus. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in Acts. This Jesus, delivered up to the the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Joseph's story sets the stage for the cross. Because through Joseph's story, we see that God's plans are never thwarted by the godless. Quite the opposite. We learn that God uses even evil men with evil motives to accomplish his good plans. And in that, there is great hope. With that said, bow your heads, guys. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We draw comfort and courage through Joseph's story. That though some may mean evil, your good plan stands. You intend good for us. God, we pray that we would learn to look past our immediate situations right now. We pray that we would draw hope from your word. And not from the day-to-day. God, no matter what the day-to-day brings before us, your plans are still good. You are still good and you can still be trusted. God, help us to trust you through the hard times. Help us to lean into you more deeply through the hard times. And God, as we lean into you, pour out your spirit upon us. Give us comfort, courage, and peace. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.